All right, all right. Welcome to the Cava Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog of the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavus Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII, delivering hard stuff, done right. Coming up, China and Russia are not only building more submarines, but their subs are getting better all the time. How does the U.S. Navy fight back? Noted naval analyst Brian Clark returns to the podcast to talk about his newest anti-submarine warfare study, which recommends, among other things, making more noise in the water. But first, a look at this week's naval news. The deployed aircraft carriers Ronald Reagan and Nimitz operated together June 9th in the Philippine Sea in what was called a multiple large deck event. The formation included the Japanese helicopter carrier Izumo, French frigate Lorraine, and Canadian frigate Montreal, as well as support ship Asterix. In the European theater, the carrier Gerald R. Ford passed through the Strait of Gibraltar June 15th to enter the Mediterranean Sea for the first time. Ford, on her first operational deployment, previously took part with her strike group in major NATO exercises off of Norway. The annual Baltops NATO exercise wrapped up June 16th after more than two weeks of operations in the Baltic Sea. More than 50 ships took part, along with multiple unmanned vehicles. In the Pacific, the Indonesian-led Komodo multilateral naval exercise took place around Makassar, South Sulawesi in Indonesia, from June 4th through the 8th. The exercise was notable in that warships from China, Russia, and the U.S., among other nations, all took part. The littoral combat ship Manchester represented the United States, while China was represented by the destroyer Zhenjiang and frigate Zhushan. The Macon Island Amphibious Ready Group returned to San Diego June 8th after a seven-month deployment to the Western Pacific with the 13th Marine Expeditionary Unit. Before returning to San Diego, the assault ship Macon Island and Amphibious Transport Docks Anchorage and John P. Murtha offloaded the Marines of the 13th Mew at Camp Pendleton. The ARG and MU spent the entire deployment operating in the Western Pacific region. USS Charleston returned to San Diego June 14th after a 26-month deployment to the Western Pacific, the longest such cruise for a littoral combat ship. But other than one photo, the Navy put out no press release for their return, despite the accomplishments of the ship, her blue and gold crews, and the people who supported the deployment. In new ship news, the attack submarine Iowa SSN 797 was christened June 17th in a ceremony at General Dynamics Electric Boat in Groton, Connecticut. The Iowa is a Block 4 Virginia-class submarine funded in fiscal 2016 when delivery was scheduled for August 2021. And finally, a keel ceremony was held at Austell, USA in Mobile, Alabama, June 16th for the littoral combat ship Pier LCS-38 the last littoral combat ship under construction for the U.S. Navy. Along with the pier, two more LCSs, the Kingsville LCS-36 and Cleveland LCS-31, are still under construction and awaiting delivery. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right, with us today, back on the podcast, is noted naval analyst Brian Clark. Welcome back, Brian. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Great to hear you and Chris. Brian, 
with his partner, Timothy Walton, at the Hudson Institute Center for Defense Concepts and Technology, has just released a new study on improving the U.S. Navy's ability to carry out ASW, anti-submarine warfare. The study is called Fighting into the Bastions, Getting Noisier to Sustain the U.S. Undersea Advantage. Well, Brian, before I, we, we dive into this, and we got to note that for the silent service, submarines are noted, you know, people know, know that submarines want to be quiet. Getting noisier is not the first thing people think about. But before we dive into your findings and recommendations, let's set the stage for the audience by defining the threat. From the U.S. Navy's point of view, what are the key problems with carrying out anti-submarine warfare? Uh, well, Chris, so the so the report gets into uh, both offensive and defensive undersea operations, right? So the the big challenge that the Navy is facing when it comes to um, offensive undersea operations, you know, getting submarines into places like the South China Sea uh, or the Barents Sea, if you're talking about Russia, is that these countries have invested uh, recently in massive expansions of their undersea surveillance networks. So they have a SOSIS arrays you know, of their own, just like we built during the Cold War. Um, they have uh, active sonars they're deploying as part of these undersea arrays. Uh, they also have active sonars they're deploying on their uh, anti-submarine corvettes. So the, the threat environment for submarines has changed dramatically over the last 10 years or so, where US submarines are now facing uh, both active and passive threats um, that they're going to have to counter uh, in order to be able to fight into the bastions of an enemy. So it's not only the, the socialist threats, but uh, the, the other side, both sides, the Chinese and the Russians, are building some very good submarines. You know, the, the Russians can build a very good submarine. The, the Severa Morris class is, is uh, pretty much the equal of a Virginia-class submarine. That's the bad news. The good news is they really can't build them very fast, but they are building them. They are starting to churn them out. They have new weapons, high-speed torpedoes, nuclear warheads. The Chinese, for all their vaunted fleet modernization, have really kind of lagged in developing really world-class subs, but that is also changing. Um, this is a really, I mean, it, the, the diversity of the threat is almost breathtaking. Yeah, I agree, Chris. And so um, on the um, anti-submarine side, the U.S. is facing these new generation of submarines that are as quiet, if not quieter, uh, in some cases, than U.S. boats. So the Severinvinsk on the Russian side, uh, the Yuan um, air independent propulsion submarine that the Chinese have developed uh, is uh, very quiet also. Um, and so what the U.S. is facing when it comes to anti-submarine warfare uh, is a threat that uh, will demand uh, increasing numbers of our traditional manned anti-submarine platforms like P-8 Poseidons uh, or uh, destroyers and frigates with their towed arrays or our own submarines. Um, so because we use these manned platforms to do anti-submarine warfare, um, it's going to uh, demand them to be used in larger numbers because of these quiet threats. And it also is going to take them away from the other missions they might do, like anti-submarine warfare, strike, et cetera. Um, so these, these new threats are something that we have to think rethink our approach to anti-submarine warfare. So on the offensive side, we have to deal with the improvements in the, the Russian and Chinese surveillance networks under sea. And on the defensive side, we've got to face um, these improved Chinese and Russian submarines that are now going to make it through um, to potentially reach our uh, strike groups and bases ashore. So you had four findings. I'm looking at the graphic on your LinkedIn page, as you said, field a team for offensive undersea operations, use uncrewed systems to free up SSNs, make SSNs more effective, develop SSNX and manage its costs. Um, what is preventing us from doing all of those four things 
So in terms of those four lines of effort, the first one is really the most important one, uh, which is to build this team for um, offensive undersea operations. So uh, if we're dealing with these uh, new surveillance threats that the Chinese and Russians have deployed, we have to start thinking about adopting some approaches from air warfare, so where we do suppression and defeat of uh, enemy air defenses. We have to start uh, suppressing and defeating enemy undersea defenses. And to do that, we're going to have to field um, unmanned undersea vehicles you know, that now you know, do the job of uh, jamming, of being decoys, uh, of even attacking um, undersea infrastructure to open up those lanes, just like we would above water with air defenses, to allow submarines to reach the areas they need to to conduct uh, torpedo operations, such as in the Taiwan Strait, uh, or to conduct missile attacks that they might need to do against, for example, China's uh, air bases ashore. Um, so that first one is really the most important line of effort. And that's a pretty disruptive change. So it means submarines are going to have to depend on other platforms uh, to conduct their missions, which is not traditionally the way the submarines like to operate. Um, it also means that we're going to have to generate noise in a lot of cases to hide the submarine, either because we're jamming a sensor um, or we're creating a decoy that looks like a submarine and put it somewhere else in the area. Um, yeah, or the submarine itself might have to generate noise to uh, defend itself against some of these um, uh, active sensors, just like an aircraft does with a self-protection jammer. So that so this first line of effort, I would argue, is the most important one, but it's also the most disruptive one to uh, the way we operate in uh, the undersea and also how we equip our undersea force. Um, the other lines of effort um, get into you know less disruptive actions that we need to take over time. So talk talk more about the increased use of unmanned underwater vehicles. Um, I know these concepts have been floating around for years. I mean, frankly, as soon as, as, soon as the whole idea of, the, of such vehicles was broached, people leap into what can be done, things that can be done with them, um, often getting way ahead of the te technical capabilities of the systems. Um, I, you know, things like, you know, the submarines carry them, the submarines can carry them internally, there are external packs, there are ways to, you know, essentially put a box in, on the ocean floor, it sits there until you want to use it. Um, but this is probably an area where, as the threat grows, as their submarines get better, as their countermeasures listening systems improve, Unmanned vehicles might be an area where we really can leap ahead in terms of capability. Do you do you, do you feel that way? And and again, talk about how how they can be deployed. Undersea vehicles from where? And you know, you've got we have very large ones, we have medium ones, we have very small ones. You know, I don't know if you can do swarm. I don't even know. Can you do swarming with small small UUVs um, like you can do in the air? That sort of thing. Can you dive into that for a little while? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's a great point, Chris. So the um, the biggest challenge uh, with uh, UUVs being used for these missions um, is uh, one, you know, does the technology enable them to have the level of automation and the endurance and the range to get there and do that mission? And then two, how do you deploy it? Um, and those two things go together, obviously, because um, the range and endurance impacts how far away you have to deploy it. So the first thing we talk about, you know, in the report is the fact that um, the Navy has sort of gone lots of di different directions in terms of the missions they would use UUVs for. As you noted, 
people can get very out over their skis in terms of uh, offering up applications that UUVs could do that are beyond the technology. So one thing we thought was really important is these missions that would support offensive undersea warfare provide really good reference missions to be the baseline requirements for each class of UUV that the Navy is developing. Um, and these missions are also well within the technical capability of existing vehicles. So we're arguing that basically the Navy could take vehicles that are more or less where they are today uh, in their technical capability and purpose them for these missions. So for example, uh, the small UUV, which the Navy just started that program, um, but it's based on the Remus 300 that HII builds, um, that UUV would be more than capable of conducting decoy and jamming operations in support of offensive submarine operations. The challenge is, well, where do you deploy that small UUV from? Um, if you deploy it from the submarine, you might take up space on the submarine you would need for torpedoes. Uh, if you can make the UUV smaller and have it launched out of a countermeasures launcher, it might be stored somewhere else other than the torpedo room, which would be good. But uh, you know, fundamentally, you probably don't want the, the submarine deploying its own decoys and jammers because it sort of attracts attention to the area where the submarine is. So ideally, those decoys and jammers, those small UUVs, would be deployed by aircraft probably uh, because they could put them very quickly where they need to be um, and they could be carried in large numbers by aircraft because they're pretty small. Um, the medium UUV the Navy is developing, uh, the Razorback, um, is supposed to be used for you know, a lot of different missions, surveying, uh, acoustic uh, uh, surveillance, um, mine warfare though is we, what we think the design reference mission should be there because probably the biggest challenge we found was if a submarine runs into a minefield, how does it chart a way through it when it's out there without any mine uh, countermeasures ships to support it or amount of mine countermeasure capability? So you have to be able to launch a U UUV from the submarine that's able to map out that minefield and report back to the submarine in real time, kind of where the mines might be so that the submarine can build a, a route through it. Um, that ends up being probably the most important mission that the MUUV could do, and that's probably the reference mission the Navy should use, and that's well within the technical capacity of, of where we are with that evolving program. Um, and then when it comes to the large UUV, um, that, that is really the vehicle you need for these uh, survey missions to find out even where the sensors and the networks are that you're going to try to defeat or suppress. Um, those vehicles are big enough and can go deep enough and carry enough uh, energy that they can do these long-term surveillance missions. And then, the, and that would have been well within the capacity of some of the commercial large UVs that are out there, um, like the Remus um, 6000, or there's an Andrel vehicle that's being developed in support of uh, Australia that could do it. And then the last thing is uh, the XL UV. You know, what is that large, extra large UV for? And the Navy already intends to use that for mining, which we think is a good starting point, a good reference mission for that XL UV, uh, for that vehicle. Uh, which would allow you to go do mine lane in really uh, remote locations that are hard to get to with a ship or a submarine, like somebody's harbor, for example, where you'd want to put mines and, and keep them from being able to get to sea. So yeah, we think those reference missions are the best way to drive UUV requirements because they can give you a baseline to start from. And these are the most important things we need UUVs to do probably. Um, and, it, and it gets to some of the deployment mechanism challenges that we're likely to find with the Navy's UUV programs. So a submarine costs about two and a quarter billion dollars a year. I'm, I'm sorry, a unit, something like that, 2.4, somewhere in there. Um, these UUVs, this is all well and good, but they all cost money too. Um, we all know that defenses cost tons of money. I mean, even, even sauna buoys. Um, and and, and in, a, in a combat environment, people, you know, the rate of usage just goes through the roof. People use up, use up whatever stocks you have very quickly. Um, this is this is a problem. If 
UUVs also are expensive. They're not being developed very fast. You know, the, the XLUV is, is, is well known for its problems and it's, um, it's well over budget, well behind schedule. And at the moment, the Navy's not, it has suspended further procurement for waiting for development of the first unit. Um, this, this cost is, is, is pretty big. Is it, is, it, is it worthwhile to even sacrifice a submarine in the budget for advanced systems like this? Because if you put it all together, it's gonna to cost a ton of money. And even then, are the, I'm, I'm sort of wondering, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but um, this seems to be exploitable technology. If they, if they, they sink, I mean, sonobuoys when they're done, they sink to the bottom of the ocean. Sonobuoy isn't worth going down to pick it up. If there's a pretty effective UUV, um, the other side has UUVs themselves, and they can go down and pick these things up. So this this is something that another another element of measure countermeasure counter countermeasure and on and on. Anyway, can you talk a little bit about, yeah. about, about cost and, and efficacy, right. and then some, something about the security of these systems? Yeah, so that's a good point. So the um, so we what we argue in the in the report, and we've looked at some of the budget numbers. We include some budget numbers in there, is that um, you would want to buy these vehicles uh, at at the at a commensurate scale with their cost. For example, XLUUV, this mine lane mission is going to be a pretty niche mission. Uh, you don't need very many of them, so it would be a really a pretty small program, and and those are going to be expensive, as you said. They're going to be probably thirty million dollars a piece or approximately if if not a little bit more than that so pretty expensive and you know they require a lot of people they require a lot of maintenance and support so it's not a vehicle you're going to have a lot of and they're going to be fairly niche applications like this mine lane mission that you probably initially apply it to um, but then on the other end of the spectrum the small uuv uh, it's based on an existing commercial vehicle um, with modular payloads. A lot of those payloads already exist. Um, for example, for decoy operations, you could use a payload like the EMAT, which is our current submarine simulator, um, UUV that we use to go and, and simulate submarines for training. Um, so the so on the small UV side, I think you could you, you could come across I mean, it could come away with a pretty inexpensive vehicle, you know, in the range of tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and again, the technology on that vehicle is not going to be all that sophisticated because it's going to be a noisemaker that does jamming. It's going to be a decoy, very similar to ones that we've deployed in large numbers already. Um, so there's, you know, the, the, the technology concerns there are, are pretty low in terms of exploitation uh, because these are technologies we've already, you know, used in large scale before. Um, and then the cost is going to be fairly low because we're basing this on a commercially existing vehicle. And then I think where the big challenge comes into your point is, is in the middle. So the, the, the large diameter UUV uh, is going to be a pretty expensive vehicle. Um, we probably don't want to buy a huge number of them. The mission they would get used for, which is largely the survey and, and intelligence preparation of the environment mission, maybe that's a really relatively small mission. So you not, may not need to buy very many of them. And you definitely want to manage that mission in a way that avoids you know, losing that vehicle because it's probably pretty sophisticated. And then the medium UUV, like we argue, you should use it focused mostly on this mine warfare mission. That mission system is probably not that expensive, um, but again, you're not gonna wanna have uh, that vehicle get lost if you can avoid it. And generally it would be submarine recoverable. So you're gonna try to keep it on the submarine. So I think, you know, in large part, um, you know, we can try to align the missions and the scale of these vehicles with their cost. And I think the technology exploitation considerations you make are very good you know, points, but I think we'd want to have it so that 
the vehicles we have in the smallest numbers and they're the most expensive are the ones we probably exert the most management control over to try to ensure they're recovered as opposed to making them expendable. Brian, how willing do you think the Navy and submarine leaders are to take on some of these newer and more challenging ideas in ConOps? Is this something that where you feel like the Navy gets this and you've kind of helped put it together and put a bow on it? Or do you feel like culturally um, and fiscally uh, there would be roadblocks to some of the suggestions that you and Tim have made? I think there's um, I think there's a, a broad understand a broad acceptance of the basic trend you know that we're making the case for. So the fact that there is this improving set of undersea surveillance systems that enemies are using that increasingly use active sonar, that's all understood, I think, and and a concern to undersea force leadership. Um, and I think there's broadly an expectation we're going to have to move in this direction. I think that the challenge is that this is a fairly disruptive shift in how we operate submarines and the way that we you know, manage the undersea force. Um, and it's going to take time to make this change happen. So this would normally be an evolution that might happen over decades. Um, but unfortunately, I think we need to have it to happen you know, within, within a decade. Uh, and I think that's going to be the difficulty is that Nobody disagrees that this is the generalized trend of where things are going, but um, it's such a dramatic shift um, and it involves some investment, you know, decisions that are going to force accelerating some of these programs. And I think that's where you're going to run into the cultural roadblocks to say, well, is this really something we need to do right away or can we wait and continue to, you know, milk our existing acoustic superiority for another 20 years and then do this with our next generation of platforms in the 2030s, 2040s. And I think that's the problem is that we need to begin this shift now as opposed to waiting until the 2030s to start. That was gonna be my next question. I'm glad you spoke to the the time component um, because I, I mean, you know, trying to figure out how quickly you need to, you know, put the rudder over, um, you, you know, and begin to think about ConOps, begin to make the investments that you went through both on the unmanned side, and we really haven't even talked about SSNX, but to begin to put money towards that. I mean, can we get there from, from here? Um, or is this a gentle nudge in, in the right d- d- direction? I, we can definitely get there from here. I mean, the um, level of investment needed to you know, kind of it continue to push or to accelerate the fielding of these vehicles um, and the development of the ConOps, that's, it's not that big a hit when it comes to the overall investment, you know, scheme. So the Navy, maybe, you know, there's an opportunity here, there's industrial based constraints that prevent buying, you know, submarines any faster than we already are. We could take some of that money, reallocate it to you know, the acceleration of these vehicles and, you know, the fielding of some systems of systems that could implement um, these concepts, it would not be that difficult. Um, and we deliberately chose reference missions for these vehicles that are, that, that set a pretty low bar in terms of technological sophistication. So these baseline missions should be ones that are relatively easy to reach with, you know, the existing programs and, and their, their, you know, their plan for innovation. Um, so, I, so I, I think it's certainly achievable within this decade, you know, to begin to implement these concepts and have forces out there that would be able to put them into action. Um, and the, the, the impact on the Navy budget would not be you know, dramatic. There, there'd be some you know, modest shifts, especially within the undersea force in terms of how we spend our money. Um, but I think 
when it comes to making these trades, um, slowing down SSN production slightly uh, or procurement slightly is well worth it when it comes to the idea of protecting our ability to use the undersea uh, for the things that we expect to use it for. Because if we can't get submarines in close enough to be able to conduct these operations in a conflict with China or Russia, well, then you kind of have to question you know, what the submarines are there for. So we really need the ability to get them in close enough to be relevant uh, or else the submarine investment itself is now uh, sort of at risk. So we have to make sure that we're, make, we're providing the enablers, if you will, to get the submarines in where they can be relevant to the fight. So the last question, um, and, and then I'll let uh, Chris kind of wrap it up. As I was reading this, I, I, I kind of, my mind went to, and if this is too simple, I apologize, my mind went to the carrier debate, right? I mean, in terms of like, um, to what you just said, right? If we're if we're not gonna, on the carrier side, we've talked many times about if we're not gonna make the air wing um, more relevant, then it may not be worth the cost. In, in many ways, it's kind of the same in the undersea environment, is it not? I mean, it, it's great that we put all this money into submarines, but if we're not gonna, gonna go after the enablers, if we're not gonna build these layers and these sensors, again, you get to a point of like, hey, is that major capital investment really worth it? Um, I mean, mean, is that a, is that a okay way to think about it? Or or are we talking apples and bowling balls? No, no, I think that's an okay way to think about it. It might be um, even a, a, you know, a different or a little bit more refined version of that analogy would be um, the air power guys don't even question the need for electronic warfare, right? So the the aviators say don't say they're going to get rid of growlers to save money to go invest in longer range NGAD, right? So right. they always say they need that electronic warfare to ensure that the, the aircraft can get there um, and be at the point they need to in order to launch weapons. So I think that's the analog here is that unless you make the investment in the E-2 and the E-18G, well, right. then you're, the rest of your air wing is not really worth uh, the investment because it's not going to be able to get close enough. And it's not going to be able to coordinate its mission. So the same thing here where you need to invest in the, the platforms that are going to enable you to get close enough to be relevant to the fight um, and remain there. That, that's the real reason we ask you to come on is to help me refine my analogies. So thank, thank you, Brian. <laughs> Brian, I've just got one more. And that's really a little bit different from what is in your report. But um, so direct countermeasures, direct countermeasures to a weapon that's been launched and is coming in. Um, people have been trying to come up with a counter, counter torpedo weapon for many years. Several have, a couple of different systems have gone to sea and then they failed for one reason or another. But if you're an aircraft carrier, uh, maneuverability is not your, uh, not your forte. Um, it, although they can they can move a lot better than most people think, but still, a big torpedo is coming in. Can I shoot a weapon at that torpedo? Like just like you have counter missile systems. Um, I was at a conference earlier this year where people were very enthusiastic in terms of ASW systems about all kinds of things being developed to hunt the other guy's submarines. When they were asked about systems to counter torpedoes, other than noisemakers and things like that, but a direct anti-torpedo torpedo, um, there was a lot of, there was an awkward silence. So my, my question to you is, in terms of fielding a counter torpedo system, is there any hope there? Uh, yeah, so I think, you know, the, the, the current, you know, the compact rapid attack weapon, which, you know, has been, which previously was the anti-torpedo torpedo, um, is pretty effective um, at um, engaging incoming torpedoes. Um, particularly when you look at the submarine case, right? So the submarine case, your incoming torpedo is going to be a heavyweight torpedo generally, or it could be a lightweight one, I guess. Um, but the geometry is such that 
uh, as opposed to a wake homing torpedo that's uh, you know following the wake of a surface ship. This torpedo is directly coming at you and using um, active sonar in an attempt to find you, right? So it's it's much easier to see that incoming torpedo and the geometry is gonna be a little bit more straightforward. Um, so that anti-torpedo torpedo just needs to shoot out you know, at the incoming, uh, incoming weapon. Um, so the geometry might be easier. It seems like that would, and some of the testing suggests that the anti-torpedo torpedo would be effective uh, in that application. Um, the bigger thing though is, um, if you don't have any sort of active defenses on the submarine, you're really left with evasion as your primary tool to avoid being you know, destroyed by an incoming torpedo. Because you can put your um, countermeasures out there, your, your acoustic you know, uh, decoys and jammers and stuff. Um, but that's really just to allow you to evade. You know, the, the, the acoustic countermeasures aren't going to make the torpedo miss you if you remain stationary. You've got to get, you got to move, you got to get out of there. Um, which means you're breaking off your operation. And that's in a lot of ways what the adversary is looking to do is they don't care if the torpedo hits you as much as they care about you stopping what you're doing. Um, so if you're launching missiles, you're launching torpedo attacks, then um, you, know, you can uh, break that up if you just launch weapons at the submarine. So having an anti-torpedo tor torpedo would make the submarine commander more willing to stand and fight uh, and continue the operation rather than immediately evading. Well, I think that's all the time we have for this topic this week. I mean, we could easily go on for probably another hour. Um, Brian, what a, what a great report. We've been talking to Brian Clark of the Hudson Institute. A real thank you to you and Tim uh, for the brain power and for how well you put this report together. And thanks for joining us this week. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. It was great to be here. I really appreciate you guys uh, talking about the work. Again, a special thanks to Brian. Before we go, um, both of us had a busy week. Um, I was uh, in the DC area, had a chance to see friends of the pod and uh, other people while I was up visiting and doing business, but you probably had the most exciting week. You were down in Norfolk. Why don't you tell us about it? Well, thanks, Chris. So ASNI, the American Society of Naval Engineers, um, has an annual symposium called Mega Rust, which focuses on corro corrosion uh, issues that, that are out in the fleet. Um, it features a lot of uh, people who deal with this stuff, talking a lot of manufacturers with their products. Uh, it's really, really interesting. This is the fir first time I've actually been to Mega Rust. Um, heard about it for years, and uh, I was invited to come down and be a keynote speaker. Uh, it was it was really good. It was really interesting. I had a lot of really good conversations on the floor, in particular. People are eager to talk about their products as always, but there's a lot of so. Well, my my talk was about rust and the rusty appearance of U.S. Navy ships, the worst looking Navy in the world. Why is that? And uh, what, what is everybody else doing that the U.S. Navy's not doing? What is the U.S. Navy doing that everybody else isn't doing that, that makes, it, makes their ships look like this? And um, I did a, did a talk with um, a lot of pictures. Um, the talk seemed to be well received. The discussion it prompted was really interesting. A lot of comments about what we're looking at, why we're looking at it. Um, I was also impressed walking the floor there that uh, there were quite a number of people uh, about you know, manufacturers who had solutions to dealing with this. Of course, this is what it's all about, mega rust. Um, it is about corrosion control. It is, and you know, how do you remove paint? Um, what's a good way? What, what, what are efficient, clean, effective ways to do that? So there were multiple displays about that. Um, I mean, I'm not even going to pick one out because there were there were half a dozen easily different people with different systems. Um, 
the point is, is that clearly they're all, you know, it's not all about just pointing and scraping to get rid of paint. You got to get paint off. You can't paint over it. Paint is heavy stuff. Um, ships get in a lot of trouble if you keep painting over paint, adding, adding weight to it. That is not a solution. And of course, if you paint over rust, that's a bad thing. Don't do that. Um, there are solutions out there, whether they're being applied or not. That's a different, that's a very different topic. But I was struck by two things that you told me before we started taping. One is, and you were just alluding to it, that there are a ton of solutions out there, like you said, and that there aren't a ton that have made it through the, you know, into the U.S. Navy. There's still a lot of work to be done there. But you've had this idea of a uh, of a corrosion tiger team for years. Um, do you want to just say a, a couple sentences about that? I, I think that's the coolest thing that you've been talking about. Well, you know, I mean, part of it is, you know, so my talk is addressing a lot of the reasons that you hear from people and you hear multiple reasons. You can talk to all kinds of people. You'll hear, well, we're too busy. We're deployed too often. Our crews are too small. The um, it's hard. It's hard work. Um, people don't want to push their, push their crews in some cases, um, environmental problems, cost, um, availability of equipment on and on and on. And really, I mean, after a while, it kind of all seems to add up to a lot of excuses. So what's a different way of attacking this problem and going after it? Because it's very much out there. It's, un, it's indisputable that it's out there. And among other things, I've wondered if it's so hard for all these reasons, and there's some truth to all of these things, but collectively that, that, that these are not the answers. Um, why aren't there, you know, in the fleet concentration areas in Norfolk, Mayport, Everett, Pearl Harbor, San Diego, Yokosuka, uh, even Rhoda, um, why aren't there the you know contractor corrosion control teams specialists who have the equipment they have you know through three four little cherry pickers they've got they have all the right equipment to to get to get rid of paint and put it on properly and by the way paint has to be put it has to be removed and has to be put on properly that's a big problem do people know how to do it and even when they know how to do it are they doing it um, have these people come in and essentially detail your ships. Find it. Find an import time. There, I mean, most ships. There's, there's, there, there's a good week here or there when you're in, in, in the cycle where you've got people on people on leave, people on training. We're going to be in port for a while. Um, weather permitting, come on board, do our ship. We're talking externally, really. And um, you know that have some sailors help these people out, learn it. You know, get the procedures down. This is how you do it. Um, and once you clean up the ship, it's a whole lot easier to keep it looking clean than to take some of these ships, which really do. Some of them are really appalling. They really are, folks. And if you haven't seen them, um, it can be breathtaking. Um, clean up the ship and then keep it clean. And, you know, why we're not doing that is beyond me. Every time I've brought that question up um, universally, I met with Gosh, that's a good question. I don't know why. Right. Um, although I did, I did talk, did talk to one one fellow who said actually back in the '90s they used to do something like that, um, but certainly not for the last quarter century. So you know, I don't know. It's a, it seems to be a, a a method of going after this problem. It is a problem. Everybody sees it. Everybody who's on the water sees it. Sailors from all over the world see it, including the Chinese and the Russians, and they're all making judgments based on what they're looking at. And it's not a good judgment, so. Well, I'm, uh, I'm really glad you were able to go um, and I'm glad that it, it went well.
That does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Bhagamaradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavishus Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner and the largest aggregator of U.S. Department of Defense cyber data. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>